Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. We are still live at Microsoft Build, and I am talking to Jeff Holland. That's it. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. We are going to be talking about serverless now. Yesterday we talked to Colby Tresnes. Yeah, that's right. Colby, I'm glad you actually talked to him. I was going to I was going to connect you with Colby. He's uh, yeah. he works with me on my team. Yeah, and uh, apparently we were supposed to talk about Node.js, but instead we wound up talking about serverless. So this should be interesting to kind of see what else we can tease out of you folks mm. as far as what's, uh, what, what's going on in serverless. I'm, I'm a little bit curious just as we get going, and this is something that we kind of talked about with him, but we kind of talked around the edges of it a little bit, and that is just when people talk about serverless, I mean, how do you define it? That's a... Wonderful and very common question because uh, is everyone who is listening to this, if they're not already aware, they will be shortly. It's not the best term in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a lot. We were even just barely on some live stream thing and they had a live Q&A stream coming in. And half of the questions were, why is it called serverless? There's still servers and serverless, whatever else. Uh, and it's a little bit of a misleading term. Yeah, one, one of my co-hosts, uh, he likes to point out every time we talk about serverless, he's like, there's a server somewhere that's Those running my code. Conspiracy theorists yeah. who are adamant that there are servers, uh, and they are right. So I, I almost define serverless initially just by the experience of it in that, and I'll get there, that sounded uh -huh. so marketing. That was, that was rich. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so serverless is really about allowing you to focus just on your application right. code and having the rest managed for you. So my favorite analogy of it is we're in downtown Seattle now, and mm -hmm. let's imagine that we want to get from here to the Space Needle up the road. We have a few options. We could go buy a car. We could pay taxes on the car. We could buy insurance for the car, fill it up with gas. I'm getting a headache. The space <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> or we could open up our phone and uh -huh. open the Lyft app and say, pick me up here, take me to the Space Needle. Right. We don't worry about directions. Someone pulls up, takes us there. Serverless is much more in the technology world. You just get your app code. You say, this is what I want it to do. You publish it to the cloud and it gets you there. Right. Uh, and all the other stuff you're not worrying about. So the... You know, how do I keep this secure? How do I make sure it scales under load? How do I make sure all those other things that mm -hmm. are taking your time uh, that I'm paying just the right amount for it? That's all managed for you. And you're just kind of like, this is what I want you to do. Go take care of it. Right. So one of the things that I, I look at with serverless is a lot of times I talk to people that are on the front end, right? And so mm -hmm. they just have, you know, it's like, I don't want a back end. I don't want to worry about a back end. I don't want to think about a back end. And so that's where serverless both in the term serverless, you know, right? Because I don't have to think about the server as well as just the, the idea behind the technology really appeals to them, right? Exactly. Yeah, we hear that a ton. The, mo the, the two communities we hear that sentiment from the most is actually, just like you said, JavaScript developers, people writing front-end applications. They're like, hey, I've got this incredible app. I know I'm going to need some data on the back end, but I really don't want to, like, I don't want to go out mm -hmm. to deal with this stuff. And just the thought of, you can go spin up a JavaScript function and say, yep. okay, this feels just like a function that would be running here, but it's running in the cloud instead mm -hmm. of, in this case, on the browser. And then the second community is Python, similar kind of world, but they're like, I've written this machine learning model and it's this cool script. I need to make it so that my business can now call into this machine learning model, but I'm just a Python developer doing machine learning. I don't know how to operate a service in right. the cloud, but same idea. I don't want to think about the servers and they can just publish in that case a Python function. So that's, that's interesting. So I, I'm going to talk a whole lot less about the second or the first group here for a minute. Mm. I'm really curious then. So, you know, um, I, I've heard people talking about getting into like TensorFlow and things like that. Um, and I think they have a JavaScript version. I'm not entirely sure how that works with 
you know, if it runs Python under the hood mm-hmm. and just has JavaScript APIs or if it's actually been rewritten in JavaScript, I personally don't really, really even care. But yeah, so let's say that I, I have a JavaScript function that I'm going to be doing some machine learning on and I decide to go set up this uh, serverless function, right? To do training, I'm assuming, to train send uh, data? Usually, or? Yeah, so in the machine learning scenario... Usually you will use, so they have two terms in machine learning, and we're, we're just going to roll with it. Mm-hmm. So one side you have training, which is like, here's a mountain of data. Go create mm-hmm. a model so that when I give you new data that you've never seen, you can categorize right. it or, or do whatever else. And then the second half is inferencing, which right. is I have a trained model. Here's some data. Go categorize it for me. Identify. Right. Usually in the serverless world, we will see people use machine learning the most for the inferencing side. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, and they'll to do the training, they'll usually use something like uh, a machine learning service. Like mm-hmm. obviously Azure has one. All major clouds will have one. AWS, right. Google. And in that case, they'll go use like massive GPU-enabled VMs that mm-hmm. do like this really heavy compute over all this data. And then they output a model that then your JavaScript function or Python function can call for like, hey, now I've trained this model uh, to detect something, and I'm going to throw you some data and tell me if it flags it yes or no. Right. That makes sense. So, yeah, I'm really just kind of getting my head around the idea. So how frequently do you see the one versus the other? So the, the interesting point here, actually, that applies to all. So when we talk about functions, it's event-driven. So uh-huh. event-driven architecture. And very often, the first event we think about is an HTTP event. Um, mm-hmm. Like, hey, I'm going to send a web request. It's going to be a back-end API. This could be a serverless API that's powering a back right. website. Well, this is a JavaScript show, so that's very natural Very for us. common, yep. Uh, and then the second one are, even this machine learning one could be, but the other one's like some background job where right. it's, it's not necessarily a, a, a front-end request, but it's like I drop something into a database like mm-hmm. Cosmos DB, MongoDB. Whenever some data gets dropped in there, I want to run a job in the background. Right. For us right now, actually, the, the truth is for a service as a whole, and this is even true for JavaScript, though the ratio is a little bit different, 30% of our executions are HTTP, and 70% are doing things that are non-HTTP. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the vast majority of serverless functions are actually doing things like, hey, I've trained this machine learning model to detect things on an image. Uh, whenever somebody adds this image to the storage account, run the model, or whatever, an event stream or whatever else. That makes up 70% of our executions. For JavaScript, mm-hmm. it's a little bit closer to 50-50, but it's still, there's a huge use case for these. I'm just going to be doing something in the background that might not be an HTTP API. That makes sense. It's interesting. I mean, people know that I'm building a podcasting service is, is something that I'm doing on the side. And, um, you know, I've had some issues with the numbers tracking systems that I've used from other companies. And so this sounds like a really great fit if I were to use Cosmos DB on the back end, and I'm going to be talking to somebody about Cosmos DB tomorrow, then yeah, I could set up one of these Azure functions, right? And so every time somebody hits an endpoint, that that could be an Azure function, right? And then what it could do is it could actually uh, take the information from the request and throw that into the database, and then I could have another Azure function say, oh, I've got another record, so now I'm going to go and I'm going to tabulate results, for today or whatever, yeah, right? Yes, right, yeah. Like uh, the, the data processing, background processing, like, hey, here's your, you know, I'm going to send everyone a daily summary of all the, the you know, listens that they've had during that day. Mm-hmm. You could have some background function that could be JavaScript. It could be anything that then either wakes itself up or sees that you added data into Cosmos DB and then just kind of generates the data you need and spits it out. Right. So let's say that I am a Ruby developer instead of a JavaScript developer, right? Now, um, I think AWS just announced Ruby support, but I'm pretty sure that Azure Functions doesn't have it yet. That's right, yeah. AWS announced, uh, so they have this feature called custom runtimes, right. where you can you can really just write any language and mm-hmm. say, hey, I want it to be Rust, or I think they have COBOL. Like, they've got a right. few ones in their GitHub repo that they can COBOL. Use. I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's always the go-to language for, like, we can support all languages, even COBOL. I know, um, right? <laughs> I don't know why Co- COBOL gets such a bad rap of being the, the runt of the litter, uh, but that's how it seems to be. I, I think people have mainframe nightmares. <laughs> Uh, they right, just right, say yeah. the word to, to to get the reaction. Right. But uh, but let's say that I, I want to run on um, Microsoft Azure. You know, yep. maybe you have some features or something that I really want. So what do I do there? Do I set up some kind of uh, a container Kubernetes kind of thing and run it that way? And is that really serverless now that I've 
to find a container? Oh, let's peel this all apart. So yeah, the, let's do the, it. <laughs> the, the first part, so you can, uh, the Azure Functions runtime is fully open source, and it's actually made up of two pieces, well, three pieces, but we'll focus on two for now. The first is just like what we call the core host. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that knows how to listen for events. It knows how to execute your code. And then the second, we have these things called language workers, which okay. it's like, hey, I got an event. I know I need to execute some code. Node 8 or Node 11, mm -hmm. you are the language worker. I need to go execute this person's code. Okay. Um, and then we have, so we have today as like supported language workers, Node, which is 8 and 10, uh, C Sharp, a Java and Python and PowerShell. So those are the language workers right. that we have written and supported as a team. However, because Azure Functions is fully open source, we do have people who've written a Rust language worker. We have people who have a Go language worker. Mm -hmm. They can still use them, but they have to kind of build their own Docker container that now pulls in their own okay. custom version of the language worker. Mm -hmm. So it's still extensible. It's not as easy as I would like it to be. There's a bunch of grpc dancing that you have to do with the host to get it all working so it's not something where i'd be like hey you want a COBOL language worker go spend a few hours and you have one up and running it's it's going to take a bit to get the hooks all set up right but it is possible to do today and and uh and then you can get that in the docker image and then kind of choose where to run it and to your other point depending on how much we want to get into it that might be that you take that docker container and you run it in azure functions and it might be that you take that docker container and run it in Kubernetes, and then you start to have existential crisis questions of like, is this serverless anymore? <laughs> like if I, if I take a function in a container and run it in Kubernetes on-premises on my servers, how serverless is this? I just uh, want to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to break anyone's heart. I don't want to destroy the server's sense of pride and say it's serverless now. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know the answers to some of those. Yeah, but, but it is interesting, right? I mean, uh, and, and I know that you support like TypeScript and yeah, you know yeah. JavaScript and That's right. you know I'm assuming if you wanted to do Dart or something like that, you know there's some kind of build process to make it JavaScript and then it just runs. That's right. But yeah, at the same time, it's like okay, well, um, if I wanted this to be approachable to other people, sometimes you know those aren't the languages that we're using on the back end or whatever. And so yeah, you know I, I, I love the idea of making it possible to go. Okay, we need Go or we need PHP or whatever. And, you know, and just realize, yeah, it, 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 it's supportable. So I know there were some announcements. Mm. Uh, what were some of the big announcements for Azure Functions? So the big ones were uh, one of them, which is, uh, I don't know if Colby went into it, and you can tell me or not. There's a, a kind of a different plan type that we're offering now called the Azure Functions Premium Plan. Did Colby mention that? Yeah, we, we talked through that. Yeah. Great, great. So the premium plan for, like, limited cold start was a big one. Mm -hmm. um, the other one was some announcements around this thing called durable functions. Uh, and I don't know if Colby mentioned that one either. Uh, he might have, but if Workflows he did... Workflows and stateful, when it, it didn't seep in if he did. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I can, I can believe you talk in that we can either pull it apart or not. But the, the idea here is that functions are kind of stateless, like mm -hmm. these short-lived, I'm going to fire something and, and let it run. Right. Uh, but sometimes the business process is very stateful. Like in your podcasting service, when somebody uploads audio, mm -hmm. there's probably a bunch of stuff that has to happen. Like you've got to transcode the audio, whatever, compress it. I don't know all the right. stuff that's happening there. Once that's done, maybe it gets published. Once it gets published, then you send out a push notification, mm -hmm. like so forth. And like there's right. a bunch of stuff that has to happen that is not just a single stateless functions worth right. of data. So durable functions is an extension to Azure functions uh, that you can pull in. You can write these durable functions in JavaScript or in C Sharp. It allows you to write a function that's like a workflow function. Where okay. you say, like, maybe I have, I have an Azure function that knows how to compress audio. I have mm -hmm. an Azure function that knows how to publish it to the gallery and an Azure function that knows how to send the notification. You can write a durable function that says things like, first do that function, then do this one, then do that. Oh, one. nice. Uh, you can put that all in like a try catch block so that if you have an exception on the last step, you can run it all the way back throughout the entire process. Right. So you're kind of like managing it in one spot. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with it in one spot. It's maintaining the state for you, but it's still fully serverless. So there's even patterns like maybe before it gets published, you actually have to click the approve button. Right. Like it's in staging, but you need to wait for an actual human to say, publish this to the mm -hmm. gallery. 
So I have a durable function that's actually waiting for that event. It's waiting, and while it's waiting, you're not charged for it. So it's still serverless in that you're only charged when it's actually right. doing work. Mm-hmm. If it takes two weeks for this person to click approve, it's very possible your bill would be zero for those two weeks. And then as soon right. as they say publish, um, that rolls out. So we had right. some announcements about even some newer patterns that we allow for durable functions so that you can have a durable function that maps to like an IoT device. Mm-hmm. And you could have, you know, for every thermostat, I want to have an instance of this durable function. Right. Um, so so that was some of the stuff too with durable, which is, it's really interesting yeah. to see. Again, it's it's trying to take the simplicity of serverless, but at least extend it to more scenarios mm-hmm. and, and give the kind of, I want the massive scale, um, but I do need to solve for for things that are more complex, like I need approvals, I need long-running tasks, I need workflow-type stuff. Right. That's really cool. And I'm kind of thinking through some of the possibilities there because that's that's definitely interesting. I mean, I've been writing a lot of that process stuff in Ruby for my, you know in my yeah. Rails app and thinking, okay, well, yeah, what if I just had a serverless function behind it and... Uh, yeah, then it just, you know, managed all the stuff there. The other big pattern we see with it, too, is, uh, like, we talked about, like, a daily report generator mm-hmm. thing. Very often, we'll see, we call it, like, the fan-out, fan-in pattern, where, hey, go grab all of the pieces of data. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have 10,000 records, and then go process on each of those 10,000 records. And when every single one of those is done, then create an aggregation report or do something else. Yep. And if you're doing that just with functions today or just with anything, it can be really hard to know like, okay, I'm going to create 10,000 tasks and then I need to wait for them to all finish, but this could be happening on multiple machines. Like I can't just have uh-huh. a kind of a simple await, wait for everything to like give right. me a call back. So in durable functions, you really can just write a for each loop and say like for each task and tell it it can run in parallel. And once you're done with all those 10,000 things, then calculate the sum or calculate the total. And so generate like the demo I usually do with this is we have a bunch of orders that are in transit. Like Mm -hmm. let's say you're whatever, amazon.com. Right. I have a bunch of packages that have been sent. I want to get a daily report for, for all the orders in the last 24 hours. What's the current shipping status? Right. So it means it's got to look at the database, mm-hmm. grab all the order information, and then do a lookup for each one of those orders and right. like figure out with FedEx, with UPS, like with whatever else. Mm-hmm. And then once that's all done, at the end of the day, I need a report that says, you know, 500 are in transit, 400 are being processed, and whatever, 200 have been delivered. Right. Durable functions that you kind of describe that entire exchange of fanning out, doing the individual callouts, and then fanning back in but doing it all in the context of like a serverless function with infinite scale and and you only pay when it's actually running. I like that. Mm. It's powerful. It's yeah. a, it's a bit it's like an advanced feature. Like it's not <laughs> it's not the hello world we tell people to start right. with, but it is a it's a big differentiator um, that we've got in kind of the serverless space and saying you can do some of these complex mm-hmm. patterns writing it in javascript code um, and taking advantage of kind of uh, the the power of the cloud and letting it right. do the big work for you. Cool. Mm. Now I'm going to go back and I'm going to not sleep tonight and be playing with the Azure functions. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to spend your night. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, and I think I think we also talked about um, like a library of functions. Oh, of course. Colby loves that serverless library. Uh, oh, I guarantee I riffed on that. that. I riffed on that for a while because <laughs> I, I got excited. I'm like, I don't have to go reinvent some of this stuff. That's right. That's yeah. what we, again, yeah, the, our mantra on the Azure Functions team is like the less that we can make people do, the better. Um, yep. And so serverless library is one where it's like, hey, maybe somebody's already written the, written the, uh, the kind of nice sample. Right. The one I want to get out, uh, which I haven't yet, is just a sample that uses, you know, Azure storage, uh, JavaScript, Azure Functions, and then kind of just sets up a really quick like single static web page because uh, mm-hmm. we don't have as many of those. I don't know if you've done that on Azure before, kind of the, the pattern where, you know, the index.html just gets fetched from a storage account, does all client-side rendering using... I haven't, no. Um, but it's a fun pattern. I've been playing with it some even recently, both uh, in, in WebAssembly and in, in JavaScript. Uh, that's a sample I want to get out mm-hmm. there too because it fits really <laughs> nice in the serverless world of yep. just letting this thing scale when it needs to and not paying when no one's going to my website. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of liking that um, format. We're moving devchat.tv off of WordPress and onto a static site. Sure, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm digging that. And then I also like the idea of having like some kind of serverless function that essentially, 
I can use for scheduling, right? Mm. So then it's, hey, this episode is scheduled to go out at this time. And so, yeah, it just spins up the yeah. serverless function and says, okay, you know, add this static page now to the website and, you know, update all of the SEO stuff and things like that. Kind of like auto-publishing type stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Have you already done the move to this, the, the static website? I'm curious if you figured out the SEO aspect of it. I'm, a, I'm about halfway through it. Mm. And then, yeah, I'm planning on combing back through it with some kind of SEO guide mm. and making sure that that all happens. But a lot of it really is just having your uh, site index for Google or whoever to crawl and uh, then making sure that your keywords are readily apparent for each thing. Sure. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's the one where I'm never, I never quite know if I know the right, the right flavor between how much of it is getting rendered on the client uh-huh. and how much Google is going to honor that um, versus having, I guess if, if yours is fully like, mm-hmm. like a Hugo type site where it's all static yeah, content. That's, maybe that's not. what I'm doing. Yeah. So that, I think those, those fare a little bit better than just the, yeah. I have a view app, which is going to be a hundred percent client side rendered. Um, I know, I'm sure there's ways to do it, but that's always been, I was curious if you, mm-hmm. if you were going to tell me the perfect way to pull that off. No, I'm, I'm aware that, uh, the crawlers do render JavaScript. Good. Great. But I also think you get penalized for how long it takes your site to finish loading. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if there's a long end run to grab some of your JavaScript or some of your third-party JavaScript or it takes a while to render, then I think they do penalize you for that. And I have third-party JavaScript, obviously, on my stuff. You know, I'm using Discuss for my comments and things like that. So Google Analytics and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, I don't know how exactly they count that in or whatever, but... So yeah. much mystery. I guess we'll find out if it can, if you can rank rank to the top of Google. You've you've cracked. Yeah, there it. we go. But um, I am aware that uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff is kind of held close to the vest because I want people gaming, gaming the, the system. system exactly. So, yeah. I don't know though because part of me thinks that if they did publish, hey, look, this is what we're going to rank you on, and then those things were basically like best practices for making your website work well. Sure that that might not be a bad way to go, right? Because you're essentially incentivizing people to do the right thing. But I don't know. People will find a way around it for dumb stuff, and then you have to go fight all the black hat techniques. So mm. I don't know. But yeah, it's it's definitely an, an interesting way to go. And yeah, having serverless functions behind it to do some of that work is definitely something that I'm interested in. I'm hosting on Netlify, and I think they have some serverless functionality and some other things in their CMS system because you can you can you, know, you can back your static site onto their CMS. Yeah, yeah, they've got some Netlify. I think Netlify integrates today with AWS Lambda. I don't know if they do it uh, like in the surface where it's there, but it, it's nice. It's got yeah. like it's a fantastic platform. Full disclosure, they do sponsor some of our shows. Oh, but, sure. Yeah. Hey, I, even I, I've I've been very impressed with uh, yeah. with that kind of to to your point, taking the website doing the hosting. So you should definitely do the serverless backend stuff for, for your scenario that you mentioned where you, you know, hey, I've got, I know this show needs to get published at 5 o'clock p.m. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be sitting there pushing the button at 5 o'clock p.m. And there might be hundreds of shows that this right. platform is hosting. That's a great job for this little background function to wake up, update your site, and, and push the content out. Yeah, the other end of that also is uh, we could set up a couple of uh, serverless endpoints. And one would essentially be list all of the suggested topics hmm. and then maybe have a back-end endpoint for when somebody wants to upvote or downvote one of them and then have another endpoint for when somebody submits one. And then they all just kind of tie together with a back-end database somewhere that I don't have to really manage. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you can use it to drive, like, here's the topics that people are interested in and yeah. not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, th- there are a lot of things around that that I look at and I'm thinking, you know, I don't need to build a fully-fledged back-end for this. You know, it, it'll take three endpoints and I get what I want. And have you done much with, because like the way you're thinking about it is perfect. But there, I also I also fear sometimes that there's a little bit of like a, first you're thinking about these things differently, but then you've also got to potentially write these things uh-huh. differently so that they fit into the functions model for whatever flavor, whether it's, you know, Netlify, Azure, whatever else. Have you had much experience writing them yet or will this be kind of Not yet. That's, yeah, that, that's definitely on the list. And I've got a lot of things going on, so... I've been thinking about it for a while and kind of refining the plan, mm. but I haven't actually taken the time to actually go and do it. Yeah, I'm interested to hear it because, yeah, it is, you're, you're, you've got the right scenarios in mind. Hopefully, the tools are all there and you're like, hey, yeah. this is great. Uh, I, I see the promise of serverless. I don't need these servers anymore. 
Well, and, and that's kind of where I feel like once I, because there's always a learning curve to this. I mean, no matter how easy you make it, there's going to be something that I have to figure out that's different from what I've been doing. And so when I look at it, I've been looking at it and basically saying, okay, well, once I get the hang of it for these handful of things, then the rest of them can all kind of line up and, you know, click into place. Yep. And so that that's kind of what I'm hoping that I can run into. And, you know, maybe I'll go back to some of this other stuff that I'm doing and say, you know what, um, we're not going to have a big Rails backend, or maybe we'll only have a re- big Rails backend for these things, and then the rest of it, you know, can all run through this other system. So That's the pattern we see the most is... Hey, I'm going to try, like I found one scenario, like I found mm-hmm. one scenario that I think might be a good fit for, for, for functions. I'm going to go spend some time and make that scenario work. And there's a little bit of a learning curve and it's a, oh, okay, I need to think about things this way and not that way. And right. oh, this is what app settings are and, and so forth. And as they do that, hopefully if, if it goes well, then they're like, okay, this, I get this. And, and then they'll kind of start looking back at other things and like, Ooh, this one might fit here yeah. too. And, and slowly over time, we've, we've worked with a number of customers where, you know, they look back after a year and a half and they're like, Hey, we've, we've got like half our stuff running as functions now. And all the new stuff is always functions, but it always just starts with like, I, I'm, I'm going to test this out. Like, yep. let's, let's see how this fits together. I, I'm obviously sold now, <laughs> but right. I, uh, full disclosure, I work on the Azure functions team, Right. <laughs> <laughs> a bit biased, uh, yeah. but it is, it's a, it's a good tech. And the other nice thing with serverless too is it's so low risk. Like mm-hmm. you really can go spend an hour or two, get some function up and running and test it out without paying anything. Like the free tiers are always so right. massive. So the risk is low enough too that it's always like, yeah, give it a shot. See if it see if it works. Yep. And if it doesn't work, brush it aside for a few months and maybe take a second look in a bit. But uh, mm-hmm. But hopefully it's there. Yep, absolutely. Hey, are you working on a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. They update the class regularly for the most current Angular, and a lot of the curriculum is also relevant to older versions. Or you can go beyond the three-day class with help from Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. They can assist your team or launch your project, including scalability, data flow, state management, service architecture, full-stack product design, and a ton more. Or you can contact them for a private class at your location or attend public classes in cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. So uh, what are we looking for as far as announcements go coming up? I mean, is there anything you can hint at or, hey, we're working on this or that or... Uh, the other stuff, which I'll mention, and you know, I know the, the interest in some of these might be, be there or the other. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work to make functions work everywhere. And and I mean that in a few ways of the term. One of the main critiques of serverless in the past has been, I feel like I'm very locked in. Like mm-hmm. I can write an express app and I could host that express app on DigitalOcean or right. Azure or wherever. But if I decide that I don't like Azure anymore, I can take that same app and then go run it somewhere else. With right. serverless, if I write an Azure function and then I don't decide I don't like Azure anymore, like I've, I've written that Azure function. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we've been doing a lot of work with to run everywhere is we just released some capabilities where you can now take those functions. I mentioned you can run them in a container. We just released a bunch of tooling so they can work inside something like Kubernetes or on-premises or wherever else. Oh, that's nice. Uh, And sometimes that's because we don't want people to be locked in, but there's also valid scenarios where it's like, hey, I have a retail store and Mm -hmm. I want to write functions that get notified whenever a freezer drops or it goes above a certain temperature. Right. I don't want that data to have to go all the way to the cloud. Right. All the way back down to the retail store for that function to do that. I'd rather just have the function running in the store. Right. Um, so it, it's also for people who are, they're fine with Azure, they're fine with Azure functions, but they're like, I want these functions in this store running running underneath this table. Um, right. and, and that's something we've had frequent ask for with like this intelligent mm-hmm. edge stuff Microsoft is doing. But in general, it's, it's yeah, so functions on Kubernetes uh, is an interesting foray for anyone who's in that world. And then figuring out, you know, more languages um, as, you know, Node keeps versioning, making right. sure we always have the LTS version there, uh, making it extensible, making right. it run everywhere, keeping improving the tooling. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the big ones that I'm, that I'm aware of now. One other one that kind of comes to my mind as far as, you know, not necessarily wanting to run it in a cloud. And you, you may be able to speak to this and just say, you know, we, we account for that in the cloud version of Azure. But I've spent a lot of time talking to people who work in healthcare. Hmm. 
right? And so HIPAA dictates that they have to treat the data in certain ways. I've also worked for a company that dealt with law enforcement agency data. Again, you know, government data is mandated that you handle it in a certain way. So, you know, do you encourage people then to just handle it on premises or do you, you know, are you certified in some way that allows people to use it for HIPAA compliant or law enforcement data or things like that? Yeah. So, so uh, like we go from both sides where it's like, we're always working to make sure that Azure has all the certifications and, you know, Hey, this is HIPAA compliant and, and we want people to be able to run the cloud there. And there's some whole website where you can see all the certifications but at the same time, we do like it's it's not uncommon at all. We work with financial services, mm-hmm. healthcare. Those seem right. to be the top two. Where very often it's like, hey, you know, there are regulations that say I cannot do this financial data outside of the state of New York. Like I just it has to be in the state of New York, right. and and you know, there's not an Azure data center in the state of New York right now. Uh, so what do we do? And so it's like, okay, yeah, like yeah, take those functions stick them in Kubernetes and run them there. Or, or maybe it's even Kubernetes in the cloud, but it's like super locked down and everything right. else that makes the security teams happy. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to live in a world where every security team was happy with the, the PaaS cloud, um, but that's not the world that we're right. in. And understandably so. So we do want to make sure that you have those options. Right. But like our main motivation is hopefully your developers mm-hmm don't have to change the way they're thinking or writing stuff just because your business chooses to run some on-premises or some in the cloud. So we want to make sure that like our tools, if you go write a JavaScript function today in Visual Studio Code, if you publish that to the cloud or if you publish that to Kubernetes on-premises, you wrote the same code, you debugged it the same way. The only change is that when you clicked publish, instead of clicking the cloud thing, you clicked the on-premises clean. Right. Uh, but it scales the same way, it triggers the same way, it behaves the same way. The developer maybe could care less, but but you do have the flexibility for regulations, compliance, whatever else. Um, it's very valid. Right. So the last question that I have, and then we'll go ahead and uh, start wrapping up, but it's when people, and we're probably going to expand on this, I have other questions, right? But uh, if people are thinking, okay, well, serverless, you know, it sounds like it could solve or simplify some of these things. How do people go about identifying a good option to push to serverless, right? Is it something in their existing app? Is it just, hey, the next feature you put in that looks like this, try putting it together as a serverless? You know, where do people say that feature is a good serverless candidate? Mm, For the getting started. I think I I would say like the a good place to start is like hey something new, like something that's kind of a little bit low risk, especially Mm -hmm. for getting to start it out. Those are good candidates. The other angle, though, which is interesting, because we see it comes from both sides. We see that a, a good set of our customers do that. We've got a new project coming up. This is some greenfield thing. We're going to give functions a shot here. But the other angle we see, too, is like, where are you hurting right now? I'm always a little bit weary of people who or uh, wary. Um, <laughs> and, and especially, like, obviously, the JavaScript community especially is, is almost a, a meme in this case of like, hey, I'm going to re-architect my app because there is some new thing. Like, because right. I've been told that Vue is better than React and React is better than Angular, I'm going to go refactor Everybody for does this. Sake. L- let me rephrase that. I'm bored. That's yeah. new. <laughs> exactly. No, it's it, it happens to everybody. And there's I look, I love playing with new tech too. I I like I get that, but from like a I'm running a business point of view, where are you oh, yeah. hurting? Like where is there a need where you're like, you know what? We are paying too much for this, or we are not able to deal with the scale, mm-hmm. or this is too complex. Right. So back back Finding to my point, things. right, where it's the the download numbers for the podcast episodes, right? I've been using a company, I won't name Blueberry by name, but uh, you know, that my numbers keep changing and there's no explanation. And I talk to the people that I know over there and they're like, I, I think the first time it happened, they were like, oh, well, it turned out we found out that this podcast app was sending duplicate requests, right? So the numbers dropped a ton. So inexplicably within the last year, it they did it again, right? We're, we're talking within a nine-month period. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that's, that's a pain a for pain me, right? Point, yes, it's not refactoring for refactoring. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay, well, I, I need a system I can trust. So, you know, it's, it, it's transparent, at least for me, that this stuff's occurring, right? Now, that said, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, but refactor all your code so it runs on Azure Functions, regardless of if it needs to or not. Uh, right. That's in my best interest. So, uh, 
No, that's fair. I mean, no, no don't, don't. No, no. Find, find where, find where it makes the most sense. Serverless is not the answer to everything. Uh, no, I agree. But at the same time, if you are, to your point, right? If you factor things so that they are small units that are easy to yeah, reason about, right? You benefit from that. That that's what I heard, and that's why I was thinking, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, sometimes you can't. It's true. But. Like I, I have yet to see someone who's been successfully able to build a monolith as a serverless function. Like the model <laughs> just does not allow for it. Like you just can't do it. So there are some benefits where like it's going to force you to think about things differently. Yeah, GraphQL is a serverless function. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. You, you, yeah, you need something like an Apollo or whatever else. Uh, I can't think of what the the AWS uh, GraphQL thing is like you, you just can't you can't pull it off. Yeah. You, you really have to think about things differently to make them serverless. So in some cases, it's a nice forcing function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if it doesn't work, it's not something you've already promised to people. Mm. But at the same time, it's a real pain point for you. So you have some skin in the game. Give you the chance to test it out, see how it works, figure out, okay, here's how I monitor this thing. Here's how I deploy this thing. Here's, hopefully I go look at my, you know, bill or whatever else Mm -hmm. at the end of the month. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, I like this. This is good. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the other thing is, is that, yeah, people are a little bit concerned, I guess, about the price. Mm. So how much does it cost to run a function for, you know, 30 seconds or whatever? On yeah. Azure Functions. I should know the price off the top of my head, but it's honestly, it's so small. So there's two, there's two related charges for consumption-based functions, which is you get charged for the amount of memory that your function uh-huh. consumes. So it's in like increments of 128 meg up to a gig and a half. Okay. So if it runs for 30 seconds and it consumes 128 megabytes or on less. average for that 30 seconds, it's some... Point zero 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 five four cents per second. Right. Um, and then the other one is there's just a flat, tiny micro cent charge per execution. Mm-hmm. So if it gets called once and it runs for 30 seconds at 128 meg, then you get the, the one execution charge, which is like point zero zero something, and then the memory usage. But there's also a massive free tier. So you mm-hmm. get like 400,000 executions free a month per subscription and you get like a gig or some crazy per second free. So like, honestly, it's, I won't disclose the number, but it is shocking the, the percent of users we have who are, have never paid us a dime uh, because they're just living in the free tier and running some pretty, like, it's not like it's just hobby right. things. Like there's some people who it's like, we should really be getting some more, but hey, it's uh, that's the world of compute as a commodity. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very inexpensive. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I've I've played with AWS and Azure. And what's funny is is that uh, when I was playing with them a few years ago, they were considerably more expensive than they are now, and they uh, were still cheap. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Uh, uh, I, it is like there's a lot of fear about the cloud where it's like, hey, they're going to get all our data, and then they're going to raise the prices. Right. But all evidence points to the contrary, where consistently everything's you know, economies of scale, compute prices go down, everything keeps getting less and less expensive. Well, the other thing is, is that you have more companies coming out with clouds. I mean, you look at the big companies that have clouds that you can go utilize. Amazon, Microsoft, and Google are the ones that come to my mind. I know uh, IBM has some stuff that they've worked on. I know that there are a few other companies that I've talked to. I think Oracle's come out with a cloud, Mm -hmm. if I remember right. Yeah, OCI. So, you know, you look at all these uh, systems. Yeah, the second that one of them goes, I've got all your data, and now I'm going to raise my price, they're going to have a mass exodus. Exactly. And then that's why it's so cheap. It's because somebody figures out how to do it faster and cheaper, and everybody goes over there. And so everybody else goes, we got to figure out how to do it faster and cheaper. And then, yeah, it, it just keeps going that way. And, and, and that's one of the great things about just kind of the free market capitalism in, in this world is that they're trying to pull people in. They're trying to get people to use their systems and so, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the, with the pricing at least, you know, they're, they're trying to make it as lean as possible so that they can attract more people. And in a lot of cases, too, they want to get you in as the, you know, somebody who works at a small company or mid-level company or whatever, because they know that eventually some of you are going to wind up in a big company that is going to pay out big dollars in order to make stuff run on their infrastructure. And so for them, it's a win to have you using it basically for free, even in a lot of cases, if you wind up moving on and advocating for it wherever you wind up, because it makes things easier and faster. It really is. It's a, it's a super exciting time to be a developer, just based on everything oh, yeah. that's had, like between tooling and hosting and everything else. Like there's so, it, it blows my mind, the types of solutions, like uh, the, 
in, it, last year during the holidays, I, I spent honestly like three or four hours and I, and I wrote an application that runs in the cloud that monitors my ring video doorbell. Mm -hmm. Whenever someone rings the doorbell, it runs the video feed from my doorbell through a serverless function that does like capturing of any speech that was set on my doorbell. It does like speech transcription. It can do oh, wow. facial recognition, like all this really cool tech. It took me like four hours to build and I pay 10 cents a month for it mm -hmm. just because there's so much tech out there now of like, hey, right. here's functions as a service and machine learning as a service. Like it's, and the tools are fantastic. Like it's a really cool time when it's like everybody, you know, the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Oracles, and heaps of others that I like, you know, are, are all really working very hard to try to build. Like we want this to be the best place for developers. So yep. uh, what a fun time. Oh, absolutely. And then you start looking at things like IOT mm. and, you know, you mentioned AI and, and some of the things that are coming from that, you know, maybe even VR and AR, you know, depending on what it captures and what it displays. I mean, it just makes it really easy to tie it all together and really do some powerful stuff with it. And it's going to be exciting to see where that goes here within the next few years too. Exactly. Like I think back to like, what was Microsoft doing six or seven years ago versus what we're doing today? And then I think about what's going to be the landscape of technology in six or seven years from yep. from now. And I, I guarantee that, you know, in six or seven years, we'll look back and be like, whoa, like IoT is everywhere, whatever it is. Yep. I don't know what the answer is. I'd probably make a lot more money if I could predict the future <laughs> and do that. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a just an evolving landscape, lots of cool yep. stuff in tech and, and uh, kind of get to be on the bleeding edge of it in a lot yep. of ways. So. Well, for what's coming next, I'm pretty sure that everybody who's pontificating about that is wrong. <laughs> sure. And... and, and <laughs> I'll tell you why. A lot of that really just comes down to nobody could have predicted 10 years ago that we would be where we are. Mm. There's just no way. And to be honest, they were all way too conservative <laughs> with where we are now. That's very true. And the reason is, is because things have been progressing more quickly every year or every 10 years, you know, is, is an easier time frame to look at that. And so eventually we get to the point where, you know, we can't even conceive of where we're going to be in 10 years. And I honestly, I honestly believe that we we probably have some conception of what could be possible in ten years, and we can't even dream of the things we're going to have in twenty. I agree because things are speeding up that fast. And so, as as much as people want to say, "Oh, this is coming," eventually, it's going to be to the point where it's like, "Oh, this is coming. It's here." Yeah, it's it's like it's not a linear. Hey, we went from smartphones to no. cloud to everything else. It's exponentially. Like yeah. innovation is just accelerating and it's uh, yeah. it's moving faster than we can keep a pulse on in many ways. Yeah, and people talk about 5G and, you know, again, just the speeds and the capabilities that it gives us. I don't think we can even think, dream about what that's going to actually mean when it comes right down to, oh, okay, oh, we can, we can get this data, you know, better and faster and, you know, more of it through the pipe. And then, oh, that translates to this for healthcare and this for this and this for this to the point where, you know, we may have an AI guiding somebody to do surgery. And then the next month, we're going to have the AI guiding a robot to do the surgery. And, you know, and then from there, it's, oh, well, there's the, there are these other capabilities with the precision of the robot that we never dreamed about. And then from there, it's going to be some other thing that we just never, oh, well, we could have it do this other kind of work too. And yeah, I mean, that, that's why I think for all the people coming and telling us what's coming, there's just no way to know it. And we don't fully understand some of the nascent technologies like AI well enough to know exactly where that's going to take us anyway. But it's definitely interesting to be in, in the middle of it right now. And it looks like, you know, again, Microsoft and Google and Amazon and a lot of these other companies are not just building the cloud infrastructure for us, but they're actually innovating a lot of the technologies that are going to take us there. And so that's also really just fascinating to say, okay, so you couple this with these other technologies that are emerging and where do we go? And the answer is to places that we never dreamed about. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. Hey, I, now I'm just now I'm just wondering about what the like who's going to be my robot, whatever else. Now you uh, you've left me with a lot of. <laughs> and the thing is, is I was just pulling that you know out of the air because who knows? Serious. Who knows? It really is. It's 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 exciting to see what's there uh, yep. for sure. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies 
from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash angular. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right. Well, the last segment of this show, we do what are called picks. And essentially, it's just a shout out about whatever, right? So if there's some, you know, favorite store you like to go to, if there's some tech tool that you like, if there's some movie or TV show or books or, uh, you know, whatever, right? Some kind of entertainment video games seem to be popular, uh, music to code by, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So do you have a couple things you want to shout out about? Let's think. What would be my picks for right now for like, uh, actually, this is, this is, this feels app because we're in the middle of build right now. It's Mm -hmm. day two and it has been a hectic week. So it's not a unique pick at all, but this has been one. It's newer for me, like the Calm app on iOS. Have you Mm -hmm. seen, do you know about or know this Calm Yeah, it's the meditation app, right? It's so viral. Like, I know I am so late to the game on this, but but, (laughs) (laughs) like as of a month ago, as we were kind of getting ready for a lot of these build releases, I was like, man, I am so tense and like I am, I'm getting snappy and, and whatever else. So I'm not being as productive as I wanted to be. So I got like this call map and, you know, they, they hooked me. They're like, we'll give you seven days for free and then we'll charge mm-hmm. you an arm and like, but like I straight up, I grabbed that app and then like every day I try to just take 10 minutes to just chill and yep. like listen to the sound of the ocean. That would probably be my pick right now. In, in the middle of build, it would be like that call map. That is some good stuff. Uh, I'm all on board. Yeah, it's, it's a terrific app. One thing that I like about it is just that, yeah, I can just, you know, uh, I used to have a recliner in my office. I don't anymore. But just be able to just sit and just, you know, kind of push the active thoughts aside and just kind of observe what floats through. Yeah. A lot of times that's pretty telling to me, oh, I am pretty stressed about that. Or, oh, I hadn't thought about that for a while and, you know, you know, with my kids or, you know, with life or whatever. And yeah. And so it's, it's terrific just to be able to kind of take a minute and, and, and kind of think about what you think about. It's like, cause they, again, yeah, they're always encouraging you like, you know, clear your mind, just don't think about yeah. it. But like, my mind is never clear. Like there's always right. something that pops in, but you're right. It's very telling to be like, oh, these are the things that are like when I'm trying to chill out. So mm-hmm. yeah, that, that would be, that would be kind of to, to, to at least my main pick right now that's top of mind, other than any cliche. Like, the, the only other thing right now that's top of mind is flipping Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, everybody's <laughs> watching that, isn't it? Those are the two, those are the two things that uh, chew up my commutes while I'm driving home. And I'm like, oh, I'm thinking yeah. about Game of Thrones, and I'm really stressed. I should go meditate. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I have a couple of uh, picks of my own. One is, is that uh, I am a delegate for the Utah Republican Party. And this is totally tangential to the actual pick, funny enough. So I was at the, I was at the organizing convention where we elected party officers on Saturday. And while we were, we were waiting for the results for the voting that we had done, somebody mentioned the Family Tree app. And I don't know, you're from Utah, so yeah. you, know, you might have some familiarity with uh, Family Search. Yeah, yeah. Right? So they have the Family Tree app. And uh, let me just open it up on my phone real quick. But uh, the thing that was really interesting about it is that if you have the app running and people around you have the app running and they have their family information in the Family Tree app, then what you can do is you can actually hit relatives around me and tell oh, it to scan for friends. It's like six degrees of separation, but it's like you are, like it will tell you how you're related. It'll tell you how you're related to the people around you. Oh, so what wow. was funny is at the at the convention, you know, a lot of us are from Utah. A lot of us have, uh, you know, Mormon pioneer ancestry, right? And a lot of that ancestry goes back to like the, the people in the Northeast um, that, that came across, you know, the different colonies up there in, in the American fo- founding. And so... Um, yeah, it's not finding any relatives around me right now. Which app is that? I want to get the. Is the, it's okay, the family tr- family tree app? This this one right here that's downloaded. Yep. I will bet you. Uh, family search tree. If you're from Utah and I'm from Utah, odds are we're. Related. I was going to say I want to know where where the relation comes in there because uh, we both grew up yep. around the same spot too. Yeah. So what what's interesting about it was that 
So I pull it up and I'm looking at who's related to me. And I'm sitting next to one of the um, members of the Utah House of Representatives who mm-hmm. represents my legislative district, right? And so uh, he pulled it out and opened it up and it turned out we were like 10th cousins once removed, right? And so I'm like, I'm like, cousin, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> we, we'd, been, we'd been kind of making fun of everybody the whole time, right? Because it, it's politics and the only sane ways to deal with politics are... Hey, we're are, family. <laughs> oh, are we? <laughs> no, no, I'm to your, uh, to your politician. Let's see if we yeah. find relatives around me. Do I? Yeah. I hope I'll agree as well. Yeah. Oh. But anyway. Oh, oh, I see. My ninth cousin twice removed. Oh, did it find it me? It did. Yeah. You are my ninth cousin twice removed. There we go. We're more closely related than this. Then you're, uh, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look at this. Our, our uh, like great, 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 great. Great grandpa and grandpa are both Mary White and Ebenezer Hill. Yeah. Connected uh, through my dad, it looks like. What's up, cousin? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Um, they, they used to have this as a web app, and uh, my wife and I put our information in, and we're like 13th cousins twice Ooh, removed. Yeah, now, now I'm a, I, I guarantee it probably actually knows how closely related or unrelated I am to like my wife, too. That's fine. I know, right? Uh, so, yeah, the incest in my house is ridiculous. <laughs> Thir- 13 cousins or 13... Uh, yeah. Degrees of separation, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if there are more connections, like maybe your mother and my mother are related as well, it only shows you the co- closest relationship. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's just funny. But the other thing that's really great about the app is that you can also go look at who your ancestors were, who were part of notable events, right? Uh-huh. And so I have a, I think it's like a 10th or 13th great grandfather that came across on the Mayflower and just stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's so terrific. And so um, if you want to go in and put your, connect your family tree to the other data that they have in there, then you can, you can have the same kind of experience where, where, yeah, you can see who's related to you. Um, At the convention, I also saw that I had a second cousin at the convention, right? And so uh, one of my dad's cousin's kids or, you know. Wow, sure. And so that, that was kind of fun, you know. And, and his last name was Dart and my grandmother was a Dart, right? Yeah. So that, that was easy. I'm like, oh, I know exactly how I'm related to him, right? <laughs> you know, so uh, anyway, That's you know. really cool. But, but yeah, really, really love that. And I think I'm going to start doing that at uh, conferences when I speak is just, you know, hey, look, first of all, we're all family. Go get this app and we'll figure out how, right? <laughs> we, we might not know it, but at the end of the day, we are. Yeah. And then, um, so I, I'm, I've really been digging that and, and having a good time figuring out who these folks are. But yeah. Yeah. And I, I get a kick out of it too, because I had ancestors that fought in the Civil War. Oh, sure. And so, you know, people are like, oh, which side did they fight on? And my answer is yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because I had family members that fought for the North and family members that fought for the South, just, just depending on where they came through from, right? So, you know, the woods came out of the um, out of Tennessee and stuff, and so they fought for the South. And then I have other family members that fought for the North. And then it's also interesting just uh, digging through it. Um, my mom's family, so her mother immigrated from France and her father's parents immigrated from England. And so on that side, it just goes straight to Europe. And then, you know, the, seeing the connections that way. Anyway, it's just really, really terrific. Mm. And so... Nice pick. I've been digging that that app. But yeah, so it's, it's good to see you, cousin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you at the next family reunion with the other, eight, whatever, uh, 18 uh, generations. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so that's a lot of fun. And then... Um, so uh, if people want to find you online, see what you're working on or, you know, what kind of cool things you're doing with serverless, is there a good place for that? Twitter's the best. So at Jeff Holland, J-E-F-F-H-O-L-L-A-N uh, is where I'll, I'll spend most of my time. And if I write blogs, which I usually on like mm-hmm. Medium, but everyone's all about Dev2 these days. So I feel yeah. like I need to switch blogging platforms. But I, I post about it on Twitter too. So happy to answer questions or, or chat with people there. Good deal. And uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. And uh We'll come back at you folks next week. Great. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.